Hi, and welcome to the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Felipe Tristan, associate conductor, and the clip of music you just heard was Horsepower Suite by Carlos Chavez. Today, we're happy to have violinist Stephanie Chase with us, who will be performing the Korngold Violin Concerto during our upcoming April 14th concert. Later, we will talk to BSO co-principal Horn Juvenal Santiago. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much. And it's a pleasure. We are very excited at, at BSO to have a soloist of your caliber and to play this fantastic piece. So I have so many questions to ask you and even people ask me to ask you questions. So let's go right in. And so I learned that basically we can say that you were a child prodigy. You were playing the violin since age two, three given concerts. So tell us about this. This is something that, you know, people want to know about. <laughs> okay. It's a long time ago, but I actually started playing the violin when I was 18 months old. Wow. And yeah, my, my parents both played the violin and they both taught at home on weekends. And my two older sisters, when they were small, they, they played the violin. So there were a number of years where I thought everybody on the planet played the violin. Uh, and and by was... the time I realized they didn't, I'd already been playing for several years. So I, <laughs> I picked it up. I just was emulating what I saw around me and was attracted to it. And then when did you become more aware that, okay, this is not something that everybody does and I must have a special talent or quality that I, I am doing it more and more? Or what, what was going through your mind when you were, say, 10 years old? Well... By the time I was 10, I'd already played quite a lot of concerts. I used to play recitals with my, my parents, and my father would play piano. My mother would play duets with me and help me tune the violin. And I won the Chicago Symphony Youth Competition when I was, I guess, eight years old. Nothing so I performed less. with them, and then I did some television appearances and started playing more and more with some small orchestras. But the main thing was when I started going to school, they were very generous and very sweet, and sometimes I would get let, let out of school early to go play concert or something. So you come obviously from a musical family. The talent is embedded in you. Tell me, how was it growing up and seeing how your life was exceptionally different, starting from 18 months old <laughs> to a talented teenager that was playing concerts and then going on to a big career? Well, my parents did an interesting thing, and I'm a little conflicted about it, actually, in retrospect. I don't think about it too often, but I actually was not in school a lot of the time. I had tutors, and I was tutored only like two hours a week or something like that for a lot of the elementary school years. I did go to a school that permitted me to go half days uh -huh. so I could practice you know, for a couple of hours in the afternoon and still have some time to play with my sisters and be outdoors and yeah. and do all that. But they were trying to look for a balance between the two because they recognize, you know, that of there course. has to be a balance. And it was difficult to find schools that really allowed that. So I spent a number of years being tutored, including what would have been junior high school. And mm -hmm. so then finally, when I was of age to go to high school, I went to the professional children's school here in New York. Uh -huh. By then, my, my family had moved east uh, when I was about 11. And so that's a wonderful school. It's still in existence, of course. And there are a lot of kids who are already really embedded in training for a profession. So there were a lot of ballet dancers, mm -hmm. for instance, and mm -hmm. there'd be some actors and there was a skater, there were some models. So a fantastic environment for... Well, it, it allowed us to do our professional work 
you know, so practicing, taking lessons. The ballet dancers had to be in class for a number of hours per day. While still having the... the yeah, so they had their academic program at, at PCS, and then they had to be in ballet. So you continue studying with your parents, but then what came after that? Who do you start studying with? Well, when I was seven years old, my mother read an article in Time magazine about a violin teacher who was considered the most important violin teacher in the United States at that time. And his name was Ivan Galamian. Of course. And wow. so, yeah. So she took me when I was seven to go play for him. So we, we went to New York and I played for him and his, his assistant, his associate, Sally Thomas, was in the audition. And I couldn't understand a word he said <laughs> because he was born in Iran, but he also had lived in France and sort of spoke with this like marbles in its mouth or something like that. But so he suggested that I study with Sally Thomas. Uh -huh, starting uh -huh. at that age, and then I could transfer to him later. But I, I never left her until, you know, for another 10 years, basically. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. so I actually came to New York and, and lived with her starting when I was 10 for lived several with years. with Sally Thomas. Yes, yeah. Was she American? Yes, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's still teaching at Juilliard. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, she's she's in her upper 80s now, but she's still right. teaching. Well, nothing <laughs> less than from the school of Galami and an icon in violin pedagogy. Wow. So... You continued studying with this woman, and then what happened after? Well, when I was 18, I was looking at the possibility of going to college and what was I going to do. And I'd, I'd been with Sally Thomas for 10 years, and, you know, and I thought it was time for a change. And, you know, it was not necessarily a popular decision, but I, I just thought it would be a good thing for me to get other experiences. Open perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I met at that time a wonderful conductor named Léon Barzin, and he was the conductor of the National Orchestral Association, which was a very fine training orchestra. Somewhat like the New World Symphony today. Yes, exactly. Like so uh -huh. it was sort of a precursor to that. And so it was a training orchestra, and they had their concerts in Carnegie Hall. And so I, I had a friend, a violinist, who was a librarian, played for that orchestra, and she played violin in the orchestra. And she said, oh, you should meet Mr. B and play for him. So I did. And, you know, and so because I had been talking to her about looking for another teacher, but I didn't know to whom to go. Mm -hmm. And so he listened to me and he said, well, yeah, I think you should go to either Heifetz, Milstein, or Grimio. <laughs> and he said, of the three, I think Grimio would be best. And so, frankly, I didn't even know his name at the time, <laughs> Grimio, because um, he wasn't playing in the United States really at that point. So I went over to Belgium and, and auditioned for Grimio. And, and it was interesting because I'm, I'm 18, but he was concerned that I was too old to be adaptable because he wanted to change some technical matters in my playing. Hmm. And that was the first time I ever heard that and it really floored me <laughs> that uh. you're too old at 18 to do something, you know. So, um, <laughs> so he accepted me as a student and he was no longer teaching at the conservatoire in Brussels. So I took private lessons with him, Yeah. generally about twice a month. Yeah. And I lived in the same village um, south of Brussels where he lived. And For how long were you in Brussels? I was there about a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I had one trip back to the United States to play some concerts, and then I returned, you know, for further studies. But uh, the last time, it was over a span of like 10 years that I actually played for him. I didn't see him very often during that time, but... He became your mentor. Yes. Yeah. yeah he had a he had a profound effect on my playing, on, on my ideas about music and sound and interpretation. I mean, it's just, you name it, you know, and the technique, I changed my technique a lot. I became much more of a relaxed player, you know, physically. And what was the change that he had to do? Holding the bow and how you use mm. use the wrist especially, you know, and, and the, the level of relaxation. So when I'm teaching, I teach at New York University. 
I really advocate for staying as physically relaxed as possible. And one should not equate relaxation with not being energetic. Mm -hmm. We can play with a tremendous amount of energy. Any tension in the body actually affects the sound of the instrument, mm -hmm. and it lessens the resonance. And so tension, whether it's in your bow hold or can be in your bicep of your bow arm or in the shoulder, you know, any kind of tension can translate Effect. into sort of strangling the sound. And so he, his sound, it was amazing. I mean, one hears it on recordings and you can hear it. There's some YouTubes of his performances. And of course, hearing him live was, was amazing too. So very, very expressive, full, flowing sound, which I associate especially with sort of this older generation of violinists where mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's like sort of a seamless kind of sound that comes out because, you know, there's a lot of resonance in it. So to create that kind of sound, I, I ended up changing sort of how I felt about holding the bow and how I used it. Mm -hmm. And so I use a lot of gravity, yeah, basically, yeah. you know, because if you're relaxed and you sort of let gravity take over, it's actually a very good weight. Much so rather than pressing efficient. the bow into yeah. the string, you know, you're actually bringing the bow into the string and then it's going in and really sinking in, but without tension. As opposed to adding an extra tightness or strength not needed for it, yeah. I assume. Do you play, what instrument do you play? I, I play flute. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So so what you don't need in playing the violin really is your upper arm. Right. You know, right. it sort of allows the forearm to go where it needs to go. But the active part really is the forearm mm -hmm. for bowing. Mm -hmm. So, Stephanie, what's, what's, how could you define, uh, in a few words, your style of playing? Stephanie Chase's solo playing the violin is? <laughs> it depends on the piece that I'm playing. Uh -huh. And I'm really glad to be having a chance to play the Corn Gold with the symphony because yeah. I, it's such a great piece of music. And I came to it later in my career. You know, I, I've been playing Tchaikovsky concerto since I was 12 years old and played a lot of Paganini and Vignovsky and Brook and Lalo and you name it, and Mozart and Bach and Vivaldi and a whole lot of other things in between. <laughs> But Korngold, um, I played for the first time, actually, not so many years ago. It was like 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting to play a new composer. By that, I mean I hadn't played other music by Korngold. So it's like learning a new language because these composers have their own dialect, in a sense. Right, you know, their right. sense of harmony and their rhythmic momentum and, you know, sort of... Um, how they put the notes together and even the patterns that they use. And this piece in, in particular is very atmospheric, has a lot of moments that are very sophisticated in, in the harmonies, in the texture, and, and the plays it gives to the orchestra versus the soloist. Well, yeah, let's talk about the orchestration for a second. I mean, it's a very unusual orchestration. Exactly. So full strings, but you have vibraphone, you have celeste, you have tubular bells, Exactly. Bass clarinet. Full woodwinds. So it's it's very rich. And then a lot of added instruments that you don't normally encounter, you know, in a violin concerto. Right. So sonically there's this incredible depth to the sound. And so let's let's back up a little bit. Korngold had um he was Austrian, so based in Vienna. But in the 1930s, somebody associated with a Hollywood film production company heard about him and invited him to come write a, a film score. Mm -hmm. He was So he was in Hollywood for a number of months. It probably took him six or eight months or something like that. So it was into 1935. And then on the basis of that success, uh, he kept returning to Vienna, but Hollywood kept calling him back. And so he became a noted film composer. And 
got Oscars for Best Musical Score twice, I think. So in 1937, you know, his reputation was spreading, and he was meeting a lot of musicians, of course, and he knew um, Huberman, and Huberman asked him to write a violin concerto. And so, so he started sketching out I something, see. and then Huberman's on tour, but so he knew this this violinist. And he said, "Oh, would you mind playing through this?" And apparently, the violinist wasn't up to the technical standards, and so Korngold felt very sort of frustrated by that. He put it aside for a while. And then, you know, several years later, Huberman said, well, I still want my violin concerto. And so he he started writing and, you know, sort of felt encouraged. And he, he gave it to Huberman, but Huberman didn't start touring with it right away. And so he felt disappointed. So then Heifetz's, Yasha Heifetz's agent apparently got in touch with and heard about it and said, well, you know, uh, give it to Heifetz. And, and so Heifetz brought it back. Well, Heifetz asked him to make it more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's and it's really a difficult. There's some very difficult passages in it. Also, he quotes from three of his own movie scores really? in this concerto. Wow, things from the 1930s or thereabouts. The first theme in the first movement is from a film called Another Dawn from 1937. Mm-hmm. The second theme is from film music for Juarez from 1939, and then the Romanza takes its main theme from the film Anthony Adverse. From 1936. And the final movement is from a lot of the music that I think is influenced by things that he wrote for a movie called The Prince and the Pauper. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, it's it's beautiful. I think lush is a good word to describe the orchestration yeah. and also the mood of the music. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, it has been truly a pleasure and an honor talking to you today. Likewise. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you very much. And so we look forward to hearing you play on April 14th in our next concert at the Brooklyn Museum. And we're back, and we're honored to have in the studio our co-principal French horn, Juvenal Santiago. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So first, tell me, am I pronouncing your name right? Juvenal? Um, in Spanish, Juvenal. Juvenal. Yeah. Growing up, I've always said juvenile. Juvenal. Yeah, I'm the third. So my dad and my grandfather are also Juvenal. So where are you from? Born here, but family um, from um, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. You were born in New York. Born in Brooklyn. So you're as New York as New as York can New get. York as possible. Wow. Um, I was born in Coney in Island. Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Wow. So you're like a perfect match for the BSO. Yeah, I am. I was born in Coney Island. Grew up in the projects, and then moved out to Canarsie. Nice. Yeah. So music. When did it come into your life? How early? Who? Um, middle school. Middle school. And yeah. what instrument? I started off with the alto saxophone. Uh-huh. Um, played for about a few months. And then I was I was a small kid, and I was like, I felt very uncomfortable with it. So I went to my band director not knowing. I was like, I want to switch instruments. He said, what instrument? And I stopped. And I was like, what's, what's the easiest instrument? So I was like, oh, trumpet has three valves. Should be easy. <laughs> and switched to trumpet and played trumpet from sixth grade to 11th grade. Before uh-huh. I made the switch to the horn. This is in the middle school, your middle school, the band program at the middle yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. It was just a, a band ensemble. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so when did you switch from trumpet to French horn? Uh, I switched to horn in 11th grade. 
also part of like a wind band thing and all the the horns were graduating out and my band director was looking for a horn and chose me. Well, you must have been doing something right. I was doing pretty well on a trumpet. I'd have a lot of summer groups I'd be in and weekend ensembles that I perform in. And so what happened after all these musical experiences at school? Did you continue in high school, college? Yeah, so I continued playing trumpet throughout middle school and I went to Brooklyn High School for the Arts in nice. um yeah, downtown Brooklyn and I continued to pursue playing music uh music. And then when I made the switch to the French horn, um I started getting into different summer programs. I did some NYU uh Woodwind Quintet um summer programs and weeks and that's when I really became serious about horn playing. And I eventually graduated high school, and I went to SUNY Purchase. Mm -hmm. I studied with Ann Ellsworth for a year, and then studied with Peter Wright for the next three years. And then I did my performer's certificate at Purchase. Wow. Yeah. So you're a full French horn person. Yes. You don't see yourself as a trumpet player? Not anymore. I haven't played trumpet in a while. I'll, I'll dabble with it and help out some students every now and then, but I don't play it. And so your degrees are in performance and education? And performance. Wow, very good. Do you specialize or like any particular repertoire? With orchestral repertoire, of course, like for horn players, it's, oh, I love to play Mahler and Strauss and all those romantic ever Big, romantic, of course. Um, my favorite composer is uh, Stravinsky, so it's always fun to to play any of his pieces. Everybody thinks uh, Rite of Spring, but I love Petrushka and even the, like, the Polchinella Suites is like, uh -huh. one of my favorite things. So it's great. And then it's great to play that music. I'm always interested in playing really anything. New music, I've played some stuff by uh, John Adams, and that's always a fun thing. It's difficult because you're wow. consistently... Uh, right. you know. And the minimalistic <laughs> element. Yeah. But I also love sitting down in a small like chamber setting playing like a Mozart symphony. It's just different ways of horn playing. So teach us a mini lesson on French horn and all the multiple ways of stopping in, hold on, what, what do you call boucher? Boucher, yeah. Boucher in French is like what, mouth or right, something? Right, right, right. Yeah, so to create like a stopped sound, you like... The average stop is just the hand midway. No, full. Full so, yeah, you in. have to close. Uh -huh. So you don't have to like stuff your hand in the in the bell, but you typically like the horn hand position is kind of like a, a handshake uh -huh. almost. And all you have to do is just like kind of close the hand or cup it more, uh -huh. kind of like 90 degrees. Uh -huh. And from there, you just have to create a nice seal in the bell. If there's any air coming out, if you feel it here, you're most likely going to be flat. It's not going to have a nice nasally. Mm. Um, sound, but so sometimes, like, if you had smaller hands, you would try to put your hand farther into the bell and try to create like a more tighter seal. But the biggest thing about like stop playing is make sure your hands like firmly in, and you create a great seal, and you have to blow harder. I think. And I assume the further in you are or out affects the pitch. Correct. Horn makers compensate for that, so the horn is naturally sharp most modern horns are, mm. so that when you put your hand in the bell, it lowers the pitch, mm -hmm. so you become flat. So if you um, cover the bell more, you get it flatter, you lower the tone, and then um, if you take the hand out or open it more, you'll be sharp, 
Right. And once you create that seal, you change the, the length of tubing of the horn. So you'd have to transpose up, I think, a half step. Play mm -hmm. You play down a half step. Yeah. So the whole subject of transposing in the French horn world, it's a big subject in itself. And I'm sure you're a master mm -hmm. at it. I love uh I love transposing. Um, so you see, I know a lot of people become a little, I don't know, afraid of it or it takes time, but right. I think it's fun. You start getting the hang of it um, after a while and there's um, more keys that are common than others, especially like the older uh, like classical era. And you, you'll see horn in C, D, E flat, E, F, G, A, high B flat, low B flat. <laughs> but then when you start getting into... Like the Brahms era, Brahms, I think, uh, second symphony, the third movement, first horn is in B natural. So you have to transpose everything down to tritone. Mm. And people have different ways of reading it. I read it um, every pitch down the interval. So, like, you don't change clef or anything. I don't change clef. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people change clefs. Others add a key signature in their head or mm -hmm. think it as bass clef, add two sharps or. Yeah, it gets it gets, it gets complicated. It spirals down, and then you're <laughs> hallucinating. But um, something that I I actually in, enjoy doing. And well, our listeners, if you're getting lost in this, <laughs> I warn you, it's funny territory, but nonetheless impressive to hear French horn players talk about the scale that maybe not everyone knows that mm. they have to transpose and do all this theoretical work in their brains within seconds of each mm. piece. Mm. So how did the BSO happen for you? When did you join the orchestra? How did it Ooh. happen? So, um, You've been with the orchestra for a number of years now. Yes, with a hiatus in the middle. I played with BSO for about two seasons. I want to say like um, 2011 or 2010 or somewhere around that time. And that was like a while ago, and I took a huge uh, hiatus. And then a friend recommended uh, to join the group. They were in need of a horn player, and it's it's been about what three three seasons now consistently, or three four seasons. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so, do you do mostly high horn with the BSO? Ooh, yes, yes. It wasn't always like that. I was, I was started low low horn, and then eventually. Switched. Yeah, I think I remember you and Lester doing low horn. Mm -hmm. And then I think like Beth and Bethany and, and Andrew, Andrew were doing high horn. Yeah, and then you started going up and up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I always considered myself a, a low horn player, and that's what I kind of did in like college. That's what I always loved doing. And when we did the Firebird Suite, I was playing fourth horn. I was like, oh, this is great. It's like wow, it's a lot of good stuff. But uh, now I'm now I kind of like playing both. Now I'm getting used to playing high horns, being up there, and yeah. Well, that's pretty impressive that you are able to call yourself a specialist or, or tend to gravitate towards lower horn, but equally could do the high horn. A lot of people have the misconception that, oh, it's all horn, but really it's almost like a different yeah. instrument, uh, different kind of chops, would you say that? Mm -hmm. How is it different? Um, I mean, other than the obvious <clears throat> things of um, register. Well, you get a lot of like back pressure when you play high, so that's something you got to get used to like the faster air mm. um the buzz has to be really small you have to learn um like pacing yourself is a big thing 
for uh, high horn. For high horn, yeah. More for high horn. and Hence why it's so common to come and have an assistant. Yes. Mm. Yeah. We Our mouthpieces are really small, like the smallest of the brass mm. section, and the rims are smaller, so they kind of like, feels like they're cutting through your, yeah. your lips for a little bit. I like, see. After I a long see. period of time. Um, that's why we get the little rings on our, our uh-huh. lips afterwards for after a long concert. And um, one of the things you learn as you as you play and get more get more experience is that you can't um, like in the beginning of a Mahler symphony if it says fortissimo like play a solid forte. You know you're gonna have to like play pace. for yeah pace yourself. You know you have another fortissimo like high A at the end. Of course. And that's how you finish, you know. <laughs> Are you a full-time musician? Do you freelance? Do you do multiple things? What's... I do freelance, but my full-time job is uh, operations manager at Brooklyn Music School. Wow. It's a community nonprofit music yeah, yeah. school. So is there any instrument other than the French horn and the trumpet that you would play if you had not play the French horn. Ooh, the cello. The cello. The cello. I love the sound of the cello. The sound, I guess, is kind of similar to horn and just a uh, low timbre. Almost, it's very alluring sound. Very good. Well, Juvenal, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for coming My in pleasure. today, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience, and all this nice information about what is it is like, to the psychology of the French horn player. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you very much, and we look forward to hearing you on April 14th at the Brooklyn Museum. Looking forward to it. Please visit brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets to our next concert on Sunday, April 14th at the Brooklyn Museum. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Audio support by Joey Glick and Plush NYC. I'm your host, Felipe Tristan. Thank you for listening.